many of us ever know what it is to become the perfect version of ourselves? This is Decoding Superhuman with your host, Boomer Anderson. What's up, Superhuman? So it's Boomer Anderson here. We're back with another episode of the Decoding Superhuman podcast. Like every Tuesday, we're releasing another episode. And this time, this is the first in a couple of episodes that I'm going to do around the concept of learning and really meta-learning. So how we learn to learn, but also how we build systems around that learning so that we can have this concept of continuous personal growth. No, this isn't a self-help course. No, I'm not a self-help person but I am advocating for how do we learn faster and the study of how to learn faster in order for us to reach for more, to achieve more, to do more, to live in elevated states of performance. And the first of those guests is a guy by the name of Thane Marcus Ringler. And he is a former pro golfer turned writer, speaker, coach, and entrepreneur, and he lives in Los Angeles, California, where the weather is a lot better than it is here in Amsterdam right now. After competing for nearly four years as a professional golfer, he transitioned out of the world of golf into his new endeavor. In his current work, Thane is coming up alongside freelancers, business owners, entrepreneurs, and helping them to take the professional athlete's mindset to everyday people in everyday life. He is passionate about speaking to the journey, from the journey, and wants to empower this generation to take ownership of their lives and never settle for less than what they're capable of. He's also the host of the Up and Comer Show, which is a podcast all about learning how to live a good life. You can find more of his work at thanemarcus.com, but let's talk about what we got into on the podcast because I think that is extremely interesting. We, of course, talked about his background as a professional golfer. I, myself, as a person who has a lot of tea anxiety, and for anybody who's ever whiffed on the tee box of the first hole in front of a bunch of people, you know what I'm talking about. I get into a lot about that golfer's mindset. Really, we delve into that path to mastery because if you think of something so simple as a golf swing, it's actually a quite a complex process. And we talk about really that trip from simplistic or simplicity when you're in the beginning stage to complexity and then back to simplicity. We get into the five P's of mastery, why people who tend to be great in their sport have really no plan B. The power of teachability, which is something that I've endeavored to look for in people is now as I attempt to hire and expand this company that I have, is something that I continually seek out in people. We talk about working through fear, and then finally, and this is very, very interesting in the concept of meta-learning, constructing systems and using those systems to really learn and improve and really shorten that simplicity, complexity, simplicity path to mastery. And then finally, of course, Thane answers my final four questions, which have changed a little bit, so check those out. But the show notes for this one are found at decodingsuperhuman.com slash Thane. Enjoy my episode with Thane Marcus Ringler. The sponsor for today's podcast is Neurohacker Collective. The chairman, Jordan Greenhall, has been on the show to talk about one of my favorite topics and episodes to date, sovereignty. And the medical director has also been on the show to talk about unleashing your human potential through epigenetics. That's Dr. Daniel Stickler. But why do I love Neurohacker Collective so much? Well, frankly, it upgrades me. 
on a day-to-day basis. Actually, I take their products five out of seven days of the week. Their original Qualia stack is something that I absolutely and still thoroughly enjoy. It's packed with over 40 premium brain nutrients to immediately enhance your focus, energy, mood, creativity, and all while supporting your health. Their new flagship nootropic, Qualia Mind, is a premium nootropic supplement that helps support mental performance and brain health. And frankly, with both products, I do not get the crashes that I commonly get with nootropics and other supplements. So I want you to go over to their website and check it out when you have a chance. It's neurohacker.com. And if you subscribe, you get 15% off by using the code BOOMER. If you want to just do a one-time purchase, you get 10% off, again, using that code BOOMER. And while you're there, pick up their free foundational guide to neurohacking. It's definitely worth checking out. But please, enjoy the show. Zane, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Boomer. I'm excited to to discuss some with you today. It's going to be fun. This is going to be fantastic. But I want to kick things off because uh, when we were chatting beforehand, your background in professional golf. As somebody who has probably hit a handful of birdies in their life, I always find golf to be one of the more challenging sports. Do you mind just talking us through sort of how you got into golf and what uh, what it's like to be a professional golfer? Well, you are right. It's um, it's a game that can be very neurotic and very humbling. So a few birdies is pretty good, you know, that's better <laughs> than most. <laughs> um, I got into it because my dad played back in the day. He was a he was a competitor and an athlete. He played basketball. He played tennis. He played golf. And we had a golf course about a mile away. And it was a, an amazing course, Prairie Dunes Country Club in Kansas. And so it was something I kind of fell in love with, just being outside, being with dad, competing. Um, and, and I had a natural swing, you know, some natural talent there that, you know, anything that you're a little better at uh, than most of your age, it's something that's fun. You know, you get to you get to do well. And so I think all of those things kind of contributed to me getting into it at a, at a younger age and, and played ever since I was three or four. I think I had a club in my hands around three. So uh, it was really what I did most of my life. Yeah. Where in Kansas are you from again? Because I, I know I should have said this before, but I lived in Kansas for a little while. But Nice. I'm from Hutchinson. So central. Yeah. Yeah. Where did you live? Uh, Leewood. So a little bit more towards Kansas City, but uh, awesome. So let's let's talk about the book from here to there because actually before we do that, we didn't even get into professional golf. What is what is it like to be a professional golfer? Because I imagine there's a hell of a lot of like brain activity going on around that. One hundred percent, you nailed it. I mean, once you get a base level of proficiency on the skill development of the swing and the muscle memory and those kind of things, it really becomes 90 plus percent a mental game it's you against yourself more than it's you against anyone else and because it is an individual sport because it is such a long sport you're out there for like four and a half five hours you're trapped with you and your mind and maybe a caddy you know and and that's it and so you really it really is exposing it really is it's isolating and exposing at the same time and you have to really develop mental disciplines and mental toughness that a lot of sports don't require as much of because it is such a long time period that you're competing within. So you almost have to get into little spurts of flow throughout four and a half hours and then detach and reattach and detach and reattach off and on. So it's this interesting dance. 
Um, but, but being a professional golfer, you know, a lot of people, when they, when they hear about it, they're like, oh man, it must be the best job in the world. Like you're so lucky I, to get paid to play golf. I can't even believe it, you know? And, and again, like you, we never, we never fully understand things until we live it. And the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And so what people don't understand is that it's grueling. It's not sexy. It's not glamorous. It's um, a lot of failure, a lot of humbling, and um, it's a very taxing endeavor. So to get to the PGA Tour, it takes seven to 10 years on average of guys competing as a professional before they make it to the top, if they make it to the top. The majority of people don't, myself included. I didn't get to the PGA Tour. Um, and so it's a long road with a lot of fighting, a lot of grinding, a lot of striving and failing, and a lot of learning through all of that to where you can hopefully one day um, make a sustainable career out of it. And even then, you never have job security. You have to keep performing. Uh, if you're a superstar like Tiger or Phil or those guys that everyone knows, they have some more luxuries for sure, but they still have to uh, perform. So part of the reason why I loved it was because it was the hardest thing I could imagine doing. And it's still to this day, one of the hardest things I can imagine doing. It's, it's just a, an amazing arena for personal development. I want to get into some of that personal development because like you wrote a book and the book is fascinating in many ways in terms of that pathway to mastery. And as I was reading, you know, I'm picturing this guy t tackling or, you know, attempting to get on the PGA tour and sort of all of the elements around mind and different things that could go wrong, go right, etc., And just sort of how you built that mastery there. But do you mind just explaining for people the different aspects or different elements on that path to mastery. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think the book was really helpful for me just to put words to the lived experiences. And that's one of the things that's been the greatest gift of just going through the process of writing is being able to explain what I was experiencing. Um, because really, we learn the most from the things that we experience. And so um, for that, for me in that path to mastery, it was a lifelong pursuit, right? It's playing golf for over 20 years. And there's many stages of that development process. But in the book and, and kind of the model that I'm using to describe development and help others in development is really based on this phrase, simplicity on the far side of complexity, which is giving us um, a, a really, you know, 50,000 foot view perspective of this path of development and it looks like simplicity complexity simplicity and and really we're in that process in any field or any part of life our whole lives um, we're always developing in some way and so that gives us like a better um, I guess a really simplified oversimplified way to think about how we develop and so for me in golf it was you know that simplicity on the this side that the first side of simplicity is really about learning all of the fundamentals, the basics, the swing mechanics, getting the different shots, understanding the clubs, understanding the game. You know, you, you work through all of junior golf and you, you kind of start getting familiar with all the rules and all that stuff and you kind of add that base proficiency. And then you enter in that complexity phase. And I would say that I didn't really enter in the complexity phase until probably college. Because um, in high school, I mean, once I got into college, I looked back into high school, I was like, how did I ever score well? Because there's so much I didn't know about the game. And, and so that complexity phase, you start adding layers and layers and layers and layers of information and resources and tools and strategies and, and mindsets, and it just gets infinitely complex. 
And you have to wade through that. And then the goal of wading through that is once you've learned all of these universal principles, the goal then is to start understanding yourself better so that you can understand how to apply the individual principles within those universal principles that are best for you in the right situation at the right time in the right way. And that's where you start opening the door towards that individual mastery that you're pursuing. Before we go on the next question, I have more of a part B to this. You mentioned simplicity, complexity, simplicity, and I've seen this in my own career in finance and now sort of as an entrepreneur. Do you think the middle aspect, if we could just sort of minimize, well, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this on the run here, but if we could just sort of forget about it, it would make life a lot easier. Like, for instance, taking your example of being a high school golfer and scoring well without knowing all this stuff, could you still score well if you didn't know all this stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, I think you can, right? There's people that are. I, I think one of the guys who's a great example of it is a guy like Dustin Johnson. I, I think most people know that he is not a exceptionally bright guy. <laughs> but he's an amazing athlete, an amazing golfer. And I think that's the beauty of it is that pursuing mastery is pursuing individual mastery. There are objective standards, right, to what mastery is. There's objectives. Uh, that everyone would agree upon that this is an example of mastery, but it's going to be different for every individual too. And there's individual standards of that. So I think everyone's created differently and unique and everyone has unique skills and strengths and weaknesses. And so that's where I think it's really becoming aware of who you are and how you best operate. And for Dustin Johnson, you know, it is not necessarily learning the infinite complexities, but just getting really good at what you're good at, which is really the athleticism and the feel and the fearlessness that he has, and that confidence that he has, um, and then surrounding yourself with the people that can help in those other ways. And so I think you're totally right that um, it's not going to be the same for everyone. But I think that he still had to go through a different phase of that complexity in learning how to add the teammates in and learning how to amplify his natural athleticism and, and those kind of things, and even just figuring out his own habits and discipline. So I think it still applies, but it's going to look different is, I think, the important part. Yeah. Another guy I think of when you said Dustin Johnson, somebody like David Beckham. And he's just, if you hear him talk, well, he's not allowed to talk very much, and there's a reason for that, right? And so <laughs> he's he's very good at the free kick, and he, he had it nailed, right? Uh, okay, let's go into the five Ps of mastery, because this is one of the aspects of the book that I started to just sort of delve into a little bit more yeah so I, I think it's just a good like the first chapter is all about this um this overall understanding of what mastery entails because if we can understand the big picture path and some of the elements that are always going to be in it um, or commonly in it we can be better prepared for it and we can recognize when we're in those areas when we need to preach that truth to ourselves and so the five p's are really purpose um preparation process, patience, and persistence. And I think that though that order is really important too. So the purpose is always the why. And starting with a purpose and a why and, and attaching yourself to that will give you the endurance through times, especially when you don't feel like it or want to. Um, and so I think having that purpose and being attached to that and aligned with that is what gives us endurance and clarity a lot of times. But you have to always marry that with good preparation. And, and, and a lot of these too, I mean, just to caveat a little bit, a lot of these two just come from learning in golf and failing in golf a lot of times, right? And so one of the things I did in college um, was I was really frustrated with 
one thing I think every golfer when they end is dissatisfied with their results. Like no golfer is ever very rarely, if ever completely happy with their round. There's always a shot that got away or two. And so I basically broke down into three categories of mistakes I was making. One was mistakes from lack of preparation. One was mistakes from bad decisions. And one was mistakes from lack of confidence. And if I could, and what I realized was if I can end the round with as little as much as possible in each of those three categories, I could be happy with my score. Whether or not it was what I wanted, I did all that was in my control to do the best that I could. And the hardest one out of those is the confidence. But preparation is one of those things that we have to learn how to be well prepared. And we learn by experiencing it. But then once we experience it, we need to just trust it and commit to it. So preparation is super important. And um, understanding how you're best prepared to do your best work is really big. Process is knowing like the steps needed to get there. And again, you learn that by doing it. Um, but it also helps you be setting your expectations, knowing where you are in the road and be patient with it because everything is a process. Nothing happens overnight. Um, and that's really the fourth one is that patience is never easy, um, but it's always required. You know, we have a tendency to err toward short-term gratification, short-term reward. And really that's, while it's helpful in the moment, it's not good in the long run. It's not sustainable. And it's usually not going to produce our best results because we didn't fight for it as much. And usually the path of most resistance equals the path of most growth. And so I think understanding the process and being patient is really important. And then persistence is also really important, which is the fifth one, because um, there's going to be a lot of obstacles. There's going to be a lot of hardships. There's going to be a lot of, you know, um, sucky moments. And that's what's making us stronger. We have to persist through that. And see it through, like I, same with a book, right? Writing a book is just like a bang your head against the wall kind of experience. And you get to a place where you just want to like, you just like, what's the point of this? And there's so many fears and doubts. Is anyone going to read it? Is anyone going to like it? Like, what's, am I doing this all in vain? Um, but being able to persist to the end, that's what brings the joy in it, right? If, you, if it's not a mountain that you had to spend two hours climbing, you're not going to enjoy the view at the top. <laughs> if it was that's like true. a 10 minute hill, then you may like stop for a second and be like, oh, that's cool. Move on. But if it's a mountain, you're going to soak that in. So That's very, very well said. All right. One of the things you bring up is this concept of um, no plan B. Or actually, and then you have a caveat that says plan A.5. Do you mind talking people through this? I, I fundamentally get the concept of no plan B, but do you mind just walking through the difference between both yeah dude this was a this is a really hard one for me and it was a hard one for me to learn it still is like hard for me to, oh, yeah. to stand yeah. by um but yeah so plan so it started in college um my college coach was an amazing guy he played professionally for three or four years and one thing when we were talking about my uh, pursuit in my professional career he always mentioned that if you talk to any of the guys on the pga tour um, and you ask them what would you do if you weren't a golfer literally almost all of them don't have an answer. They don't have a plan B. They don't have any other option. This is the only thing they would do, right? And so it shows you that the level of commitment it takes to be successful. Because what I found for me was when I started off, I was like, yeah, you're right. You know, I'll do that. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, but I could also do this or that if it doesn't work out, right? That's a plan A.5. It's not saying I don't have a plan B, but if it doesn't work out, I could do, you know, this or this and kind of like, I'm interested in this and giving yourself a way out ultimately. And what that's doing is saying, I'm committed 90%, which leaves 10% of me open to doubts, fears, and not giving all that I have towards this endeavor. And it took me probably six months, almost a year into my professional career to really finally come to that 
like experiential realization and finally commit and sell out and which is a much scarier place to be when you're fully leveraged and fully committed um it leaves you open to full failure right and and that's a super scary place and that's the thing that keeps us from doing it but really it's limiting our ability to be sold out it's limiting our potential and limiting limiting our investment in, in it by opening the door to those doubts and fears and other possibilities and so if we're really trying to do something challenging something hard but something worthwhile um, it takes full commitment and we really I, I think the fear of failure is something that we can overcome by just understanding the that their irrationality in that oh yeah let's let's double click on that word irrationality because I find there's a lot of people that get themselves all in a you know tussle tiff whatever it is over the idea of jumping off the cliff and finding the parachute on the way down unlike that analogy like you're probably not going to die do you mind just sort of going into why people should be more committed on that sort of no plan b path totally yeah i love talking about this because it's really just helpful to to get some clarity around it i mean i think that jumping off a cliff should never be completely blind right that's the preparation is like looking ahead and really examining who we are how we're created equipped and called to be and where our strengths are and leaning into those um with objective counsel from others too like those are all important but the reality is you're never gonna have full information about the path ahead so it's always gonna be somewhat blind um, and that's what faith entails and walking by faith and being committed to that but the fear of failure is is irrational because what it's saying is and this is what I was thinking even in golf before I was fully committed is that if I commit to this path and I travel down this road and it ends up failing and I reach a dead end it's like I have to go all the way back to the beginning again and start over. But that's the irrationality is you never have to start over. You get to take a few steps back based on all the road you've traveled so far, pick a new direction, pivot, and move forward with all the experience you've already gained. And so when, with that understanding, we get to say, okay, if I get fully committed and I do the absolute best I can in all aspects of this, leave no stone unturned and commit to it fully, then whether or not that's a success or a failure, what that experience will provide and the skills I gain through that and the growth I have personally through that will prepare me for whatever it is next. And I'll be able to do whatever it is next, whether it's golf or whether it's something else, that much better because I was that committed to this process and this path. Well said, brother. That was really good. Yeah, I think no matter where we fail, right, there's always learnings. And you're always going to become, you're going to become a better person because you tried. And so most of the things that we do when we veer off and try something new, we're not going to die unless you're jumping off a cliff without a parachute, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so just being able to recognize that and recognize the value in trying hard things. I also find that employers recognize that too. So if you're worried about going out and starting a business and meet you, there's a decent likelihood that you will fail. But like there's value in that to somebody else who may be able to employ you later. So very, very well said. And and I think it's important too to note like it's that everyone has differing levels of like risk um adversity adversity. Like I mean, there's some people that are just more risk averse and more that are more welcoming to it, you know? And I think, but I, I think the important other caveat is that that's also a trained and developed response. So regardless of what your natural inclinations are, you can always 
grow in your capacity to handle more risk by embracing more risk. Like when the more you take on, the more you can handle um, as you grow in, in your comfortability in that. And, and I think like it's, it's also, there's a, always a balance, right? There's a great quote, I think, Kusti Amato, who is Mike Tyson's trainer, he said, and this is referring to fear, but it's very similar to risk. It's like, fear is like fire. It can cook for you. It can warm your house or it can burn it down. <laughs> and there's a fine line a lot of times between those things. So you, you do have to find a balance. And it's the same thing with anxiety, right? Like if you're stressed, that can be a really good thing. It can get you into that flow and you're ready to rock. But if you perceive that stress negatively and then you get stressed about being stressed, it's it's a one-way trip to no man's land, that's for sure. Let's move on to, um, in the book, you talk about really this dedication to learning and really how we can earn the title of learner. Do you mind chatting just a little bit about what the title of learner means? Because I think a lot of us, we think we go to school for 18, 22 years, maybe longer if you get a PhD. And then for a lot of us, that's when the learning stops. What do you mean by the title of learner? Totally. Well, I had to learn this later in college, actually. So it took me a long time. And I think that's the the hard hard part about the education system we have is that it teaches people to get good at the game of education. Um, and the game of education is getting good grades and then getting a job. And I think um, if we can just have more intentionality around individually, like I, I, changing the system is a much bigger thing. Um, that's a very complex thing. We can go there if you want to, by the way. <laughs> I'm happy. Like, well, this could be a fun debate, but go go, yeah, go for it. Yeah, I mean, it, there's there's trade-offs. And there's a great quote on that, too, actually. There's this guy, um, I think it's H.L. Mencken, he said that for every simple problem, or for every complex problem, there's a simple solution, and it's always wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, that's, that's pretty much true. I mean, there's never a, a simple solution to complex problems. But um, so, yeah, I think being a learner uh, means that you're able to um, apply learning on all aspects of life. It's not just saying like, it's not just an education, right? It's something that you receive. It's passive. And when you learn, it's something that you're actively fighting for. Because there's a great book called um, Make It Stick by Peter Brown. And it talks about learning strategies, and it's just really helpful. But the overall consensus of learning that's studied in research shows that the path of most resistance always equals the path of most learning. So the things that you have to fight for the most are the things you're going to learn the most. And, and it's not a fun fight, right? Because going to the gym and fighting for strength, like that's, there's something fun in that. I really enjoy pushing my body. And yeah, it sucks in the moment, but it feels really good too. Learning is something that usually doesn't feel very good because in the mind, it's like mentally taxing, it's draining, it's fighting in your mind to remember things, to recall things, to categorize, to give spacing. It's just, it's not super fun, but we have to embrace it and we have to embrace the struggle and find the beauty in that because again, if we can learn how to learn well, there's nothing we can't learn. It's really the key ingredient to all of life um, and our development throughout life. And now, it's also hard to keep that being a lifelong aspect, right? Because the older we get, the more that we learn, the more we just start categorizing and then repeating what we know versus seeing with those childlike eyes. And so learning looks a little different throughout our lives, but it's something that we should always press into and lean into. And it's going to be hard the older we get 
um, because our roles do change a little bit. One of the things I've looked into now as I'm starting to sort of hire people for my business is different characteristics that I always like that every person that I want to hire should have in common. And one of them, which you touch in the book, is teachability. How do you, can you coach teachability? And do you mind first just defining what you mean by teachability in the book? Yeah, that's a great question. So teachability is, is honestly, as core is, is a sense of humility, a sense of meekness, of understanding like that you don't know it all um, and that you're not also the center of the world. And so I think that's part of it, just like knowing that you don't know it all and that you can learn from others. And honestly, you can probably learn from pretty much anyone whether or not you think it's truly learning, you can learn sometimes what not to do from others. You can learn sometimes just different aspects of things that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise. I mean, we can learn a lot from children. You know, they, they teach us a lot. And it's like, wait a second, children teaching you? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> you know, so um, teachability is just that, it's that inward heart position of saying, look, I don't know it all and I can learn from others. And it's a blessing to have um, their their perspective or their expertise or their wisdom. Um, now, I think that's why I pair it with discernment in the chapter because early on, right, teachability applies in a wider range. When we're younger, we need to be taught by a lot of others because there's a lot more that we don't know um, and there's a lot that they can give. The older we get, there has to be more and more discernment in who we really give that credibility towards. Again, we can learn from everyone, but who we really pursue being taught from will be more discerned and refined because not all voices are created equal. Amen. That's uh, particularly important, by the way, if you're an entrepreneur and looking to hire like consultants and things, definitely, uh, definitely need an evaluation process and a discernment, discernment aspect to that. Uh, let's talk about pride because here is sort of one thing I want to challenge you on is just sort of is pride always the enemy or is there an element of pride that's a good thing? I love that challenge. And it's actually very true that it's not always the enemy. And, and so that's where even like, I, I think there's things, you know, that's, that's one thing that, because I'm sure you probably found that in my book, which I don't necessarily remember the section, but I can imagine that being in there. And the cool thing about the book is that I, the subtitle is just my quarter life perspective on mastery. So I'm interested in the next five, 10 years to see how that perspective changed because it will inevitably, right? And I, that's why I lead with the quote from Muhammad Ali that the man who views his life the same at, 20, at 50, the same as he did at 20, wasted 30 years of his life. And so, um, so it's gonna be interesting to see how those things change. But, but I will agree with you. I think, um, I think that not all forms of pride are bad. Uh, there's actually a great quote. Who was it by? Oh yeah, Isak Dennison. She said that pride is faith in the idea that God had when he made you. And so it's like, um, there is a sense of pride that's really good. Um, there really is. Like being proud of your accomplishments and, and the work and effort you gave, being proud of your effort, being proud of, yeah, like the, the honorable things, the admirable things. Like there's, there's healthy pride there. I'm um, being proud of your your people, your 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 family, whatever it may be, right? I think the the unhealthy form of pride that's more common though is self glorification. Oh yeah, and I think self glorification is is almost always bad. Mm, yeah, <laughs> and so um, uh, so I think you're right, um, but I think the experience of most people when they think of pride is the negative one, and so that's why I think the generalization is made. <laughs> but yes, uh, I mean. 
I'm completely on board there. Anytime I've got myself into trouble in life, it's usually because of hubris and pride. So uh, 100% agree with you, man. And it's, you know, it's a human condition. Like it's, I think it's the thing that we'll all struggle with the most because it's so pervasive. Um, and, you know, I'm a Christian, so I come from the biblical worldview. And, and there's so much in the Bible about how pride, like the order is always pride and then fall. Like it's just always that, like the pride goes before the fall. It's just how it happens. And so it's like, okay, how can I keep the fall from happening? Well, check pride. <laughs> so I, I guess as a prof- professional golfer, you had a lot of experience with fear, I imagine, just sort of general tournament fears. I personally have a lot of tea anxiety when I get up to like that first first hole, which is inevitably a par four, and I can't hit a driver. I get a lot of <laughs> tea anxiety. How do you deal with it? Because you describe in the book sort of a process for dealing with fear, and I want to go through that because I, I find it very fascinating just given how much of a mind game golf is. It is. It's definitely a mind game and it's definitely a process, like you mentioned. So part of it is you you have to fail, right? You have to fail to learn. So you have to fail and see like, okay, here's a need. Here's where I need to grow in. Um, I mean, I, and it happens so often in golf. So like I remember first tournament in South Korea when I was playing on the One Asia Tour. I'm literally the... I get I get the tea times in the tea times for the the next day and I look at it um, on the first group off number ten and I get there and I'm literally the first guy hitting a golf shot in the whole tournament you know off number ten and this is my first tournament overseas like a whole new place I've never been to I'm by myself um, against some great field and I get up there and I'm just like so nervous you know and, and like and and not even really thinking straight you know and literally just block a tee shot 30 yards right OB. It was probably one of the worst shots I'd hit that year, you know, like horrible. Um, and I was pissed. I was pissed at myself for handling it that poorly, but I had to handle it that poorly so that the next time I knew how to handle it well. You have to learn what not to do in order to learn what to do. But in, in fears, you know, those are, irre- again, it's recognizing first the, the lie in fear, the irrationality in it. So I think before that, even you have to discover it. You have to see, okay, here's a fear and it's affecting this shot and it's producing this result. So you have to see it, you have to discover it. Then you have to recognize the lie. You have to say, okay, what is not true about the situation? And in that example, for me, it was saying, okay, there's a lot of extra pressure on the shot because it's the beginning of the tournament. There's people watching, there's expectations that you're going to be good and et cetera, et cetera, right? Which are all um, assumptive and maybe not true and not important. <laughs> so you have to discover, you have to recognize, and then you have to preach the truth. You have to change the lie with truth and say, okay, I've been practicing my whole life. I've been playing my whole life. I have the ability to hit this shot well. These external circumstances should not affect it because I have control over my body and my mind. And I'm going to not think about what I don't want to do, but think about what I'm going to do. Um, and then you have to habitualize that process because it doesn't go away. Fears don't just magically disappear. We can't ignore them. And so, you know, typically we'll either try to uh, run away from it, the fight or flight, or we just try to ignore it. And both of those don't work. So a lot of it is just the, the habitualizing of embracing it, being comfortable with it. And then like you talked about earlier, using it as an advantage and not a disadvantage. One of the things that immediately comes to mind because it's something that I, I talk to people about all the time is passporting this to something like public speaking, where if you don't have the routine, chances are at one point you're going to have that panic attack 
or something happened to you. And I think you you nailed it on the head, just ritualizing it, habitualizing it, and just going through that same process continually. Uh, that can get you through a lot, right? Mm. And you look at the best of anything, right? They have, they are the most legalistic on their rituals and their, pra- like their systems or practices. I mean, literally like Michael Jordan. I mean, he w- and Kobe Bryant, these guys are like masters of their rituals, of their systems and of their practice. And it's, look, like it's super boring. It's super unsexy. It's not fun, but you do it. You do the work because you know it produces results. And the best performers, the best of anything, they find beauty in the process, enjoy in the mundane, and they're able to do it over and over and over again because of it. Um, and that's what produces the results. <laughs> that's going to be the quote for this episode, beauty in the process, enjoy in the mundane. I love it. Let's talk about those systems because uh, I, I believe a lot in what you just said about the routines, the process, the systems, the mundane. How do you construct those? Yeah, it's huge. And I think, I think again, the first step is always self-awareness. And that's something that in today's society is really dying um, because of the age of information and the barrage of just noise and marketing and advertisers and all of that, right? So it's something that is not increasing but decreasing, and it doesn't happen by chance. And so people really need to embrace intentionality around understanding who they are and being still enough or creating space enough to really get to know how you best operate because you can't develop systems if you don't know how what the best systems are because you don't know you <laughs> so but i think there's a process of um looking at other people's systems adopting theirs um and seeing what works for you but then there's also a, a element of creating your own system um and so i think merging those two and usually it goes in that order so usually you start by seeing what other systems people have and adopting those and experimenting with them and seeing what works and what doesn't that experimentation process is really important because again you don't really know something until you experience it or do it Um, and so experimenting but giving it a long enough period of time to really see the true merit of it is something that's often missed because if you just do something for a day or a week you probably won't see the true fruit of it it usually takes several weeks of time to really fully examine and evaluate it. Um, and then once you have gone through, you know, again, adopting a fair amount and, and learning more about yourself, you can really start then creating for yourself things that maybe you didn't find anywhere else, but you know about you is true and you can help implement and influence yourself in that way. But man, we, at the end of the day, it's all about helping ourselves help ourselves. <laughs> and systems do that because we are not robots. And life is full of momentum, ups and downs, ebbs and flows, and we have emotions. And all those things produce variability that will limit our optimization and our uh, profitability or productability. And so we have to kind of help ourselves help ourselves and and try to steer us in the right direction. One last thing I want to touch on before we go into the final four questions. And you have a whole chapter dedicated to failure in the book. But how, how to deal with failure? Because this can be very painful, right? Especially if you don't have a plan B. How do you deal with it? Or how do you, like, do you prepare yourself for it? What, what are some of the steps that you recommend? Yeah, you know, failure is super hard because I think it's, um, if it weren't, if it, if it wasn't for everyone else, you know, failure wouldn't be that hard. But for everyone else that sees it and, and has opinions about it and um, culture and how it talks about it, you know, those, all those things make it a hard thing for us to deal with. And I think that helps us understand what 
where the the challenge and failure is and really it's an identity thing so if if we if we find our identity in what we do instead of who we are then we're going to be very negatively affected by failure um, because we that's then an identity thing we're a failure i'm a failure we're associating that with who we are and that's never the case right and so Understanding that our identity as a human being is something that no one can take away, that no one can give you. It's already been given at birth. You have it. Um, and that makes everyone equal on the same playing field because we're of the same race. We're a human. If we can have our identity as that, um, it'll free us up to not be associating failure with our core identity and allow us to see that, it, again, it's our tutor, it's our teacher, it's our friend. It's helping us get better. And it's not deadly, right? It's not devastating. So I think that's the biggest key to unlocking our ability to embrace it or be free from it. And it's something that, you know, we have to constantly preach to ourselves and, um, and, and, and also like not listen necessarily to others in that. Um, but again, we're not glor like the goal is not to glorify failure. Like none of us, we shouldn't glorify it or really truly want it. We want to succeed and that's a good thing. So failure is not to be glorified, but it's also not to be run away from or avoided uh, because if we're trying to do something challenging, we are going to fail. Let's talk about transitions. And I know I said we were going to go in the final four questions, but I have to ask this based on the identity question. People who are transitioning, somebody who was working, then retired, um, somebody who's worked in one career aspect and then another, that for some people is a challenge to identity. You identified as an investor, as a mutual funds operations person, etc., And then you're transitioning to this new thing and they're no longer that person. How do you deal with that? Because it's it's like are there is there like a prescribed amount of steps or do you just have to find something else yeah no it's it's a challenge because again there's a disconnect between like who you think or say you are and what who others say or think you are and so and i think the reality is it just takes time so there's a combinations of patience and persistence again in that so I think for me, so I'll use a personal example. So for me in golf, right, I played golf my whole life, 20 plus years, um, pursued this professional golf career for almost four years. And that, you know, through I I basically at the end of that period, after three and a half years of playing, I I committed to reevaluating and I had dealt with an injury. So it was a it was a tough season for about a year and a half, the last and the second half of it. Um, but at the end of it, I, I knew that I needed to give myself space to really evaluate. So I committed to not making a decision for two months as I, um, as I kind of worked on getting everything in line and, and kind of doing some more rehab. And then, and then yeah, just giving myself, myself space to pray about, to seek counsel, um, to seek um, advice from my team, um, and then to really reflect and give it the space in my heart because it is that big of a decision. And so through that time, um, God made it clear that it was time to, to move on to another endeavor. Um, and my key re- rubric for that was the question, who have I been created, equipped, and called to be? And the conclusion was that I can be more effective and fruitful outside of the world of golf than within it, just based on my skills and, and how I've been wired. And so once that decision was made, though, I knew exactly what you're talking about, how hard it's going to be to deal with the identity part of it. Um, so I knew in my heart what I needed to do, but I knew that it was going to be a super big challenge based on what other people put onto that decision. So what I did was I kind of leveraged it strategically to my advantage by saying, okay, I decided like in mid to late November, and then 
I took about a week before I told my family. <laughs> and then once I told my family and close, and then I told my, my team, uh, my investors and sponsors. And then after that, I told friends and other family. And then I told everyone else after that. So I staged it. I staged kind of the reveal so that I could make sure that I am not overwhelmed or negatively affected by what other people put onto that. So I think there's a very real process that takes place and we have to learn um, how we can best help ourselves in those periods and how we can understand that like, look, other people don't necessarily have bad intentions in what they put onto it, but it's going to have a, an effect on you if you aren't, um, if you aren't able to see it from their perspective, right? And say that, okay, that's their perspective. That doesn't necessarily mean it's my reality. Very well said. Some information I wish I had, frankly, when I left banking, because I would have saved myself a lot of time and trouble and mental, I call it mental masturbation, but you know, mental gymnastics, if you will, around that. And it took a while, but that's very well said. Let's, let's jump into some rapid fire because that's how I like to end all of these podcasts is rapid fire questions. What do you think is the most overlooked aspect of health today? Mm. <laughs> it's a no brainer to me sleep. Oh my goodness, dude. Like I, it is literally like the magic elixir that everyone just abuses. Um, as a professional athlete, like my job was my performance, right? So my job was how can I maximize my performance? And I got very intimate and very real experience with understanding how much poor sleep or lack of sleep affects performance on all levels. And so now that I've tasted and seen that, you know, sleep and the power of it, I can't go back, which is a good thing. You know, my former self in college was, you know, the quoting 50 cent and saying that sleep is for people who are broke. I don't sleep. And, you know, and running off like four to five hours and thinking I'm Superman. But, but once you start realizing that, over time that adds up and not only affects mentally, but physically and in golf, if I didn't get good quality sleep or good recovery, literally my golf game hurt like my touch around the greens wasn't as sharp, my consistency, my swing wasn't as good. And my uh, focus and my mental strength and discipline weren't as strong either. So literally physical and mental is affected. Um, and so now like I'm very uh, legalistic and I prioritize sleep above most things. And the average human needs seven to nine hours. Matthew Walker has a great couple interviews on that, just about sleep, great resource there. But it's, I, it's such a culture, it's such a cultural influence thing. I mean, America especially is just a culture of achievement and high achievers and performance. And we think that we don't have time to sleep more, but in reality, like we can't not have time to sleep more. I don't know what else to say other than 100%, man. I completely <laughs> agree with you. Like, I, I, I was a person who slept four to six hours a night from 18 to 30. So I, I know the impact of that. And now that I'm a little bit more dedicated to sleep rituals, it, it's paid off big time. Favorite book on high performance? Mm, gosh, I love that. Um, there's so many good ones. Uh, you can rattle off a couple if you want. Okay, I'll do a couple. Yeah, I'll do a couple. So The Rise of Superman... Uh, Stephen Kotler, it's all about flow, it uses the illustration of extreme athletes because their lives depend on getting into flow. That's a great book for just engaging with being in the zone and what that entails. I guess the other ones I'd say are um, The Inner Game of Tennis is a great book about understanding self-dialogue between kind of the two selves within us in any type of performance, whether it be athletic or business or um, performing arts. That's a really good resource. And then 
I guess the third one that was really impactful for me was The Mindful Athlete by George Mumford. It was all, it really kind of highlights the importance of presence and how mindfulness training and meditation is such an important tool for that, but also how to embrace each moment for what it is and overcome the situational or circumstantial obstacles in that. So it's a, it's a great read as well. You're the second person today that's recommended the inner game of tennis to me. So I, I think after this, my Amazon account will get a little ding and I'll, <laughs> I'll have to check it. that one out. Uh, your top trick for enhancing focus. I love the Pomodoro technique. It's actually kind of hard to do. Um, it's hard to convince yourself to do it. But man, I actually, I, I got these little, uh, these uh, oh, nice hourglasses. Glasses. Yeah. Yep, yep, with a 30 and five. So man, that's such a great tool. Like it literally just is like a natural hack for focus. It's amazing. So I, I try to recommend that to everyone I work with. And, and I also try to recommend it for myself because it's still sometimes hard to follow through with. But that that just gives you the space to be fully committed and fully focused that produces the best work for sure. Yeah, I have a timer on my screen and I do the exact same thing. It's either, depending on how much sleep, going back to what we were just talking about, I get it's either 45 in a couple minutes or it's 90 in a few. So it's it, that's great. Where can people learn more about you and the book? Thanemarcus.com is where I house pretty much all the information about the book, um, about the coaching I do, and then about the speaking and uh, the podcast I'm on. So um, definitely go to Thanemarcus.com. And then on the socials, at Thanemarcus um, on Instagram is really my most used, but would love to, yeah, would love to connect with people. Excellent. Thane, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. It's been an absolute pleasure just diving deep into the book and your thought process. Love hearing your story. Thanks so much, Boomer. This has been fun and definitely feel like a kindred, uh, kindred spirit with you in many ways. So, <laughs> Absolutely. To all the superhumans listening out there, have an absolutely epic day. Superhumans, before you go, can I ask two favors? Did you enjoy that episode? If so, can you send me an email at podcast at decodingsuperhuman.com? Provide any feedback, positive or negative. I would love to hear from you. And for those of you who have really taken advantage of that, you know I respond to each email. Secondly, if you did enjoy the episode, can you head on over to iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, any one of your favorite podcast listening platforms, and give Decoding Superhuman a five-star rating. It would really be appreciated. And then finally, for those of you who are looking at taking an informed approach to health, head on over to decodingsuperhuman.com. Check out what we have going on over there. And if you want to schedule a free 15-minute discovery call with me, you're going to have that option. Superhumans, have an absolutely epic day. And remember, as always, choose health. Choose health.